Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm David Watson, Principal of Green Templeton College. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to Green Templeton College at Somerville. And my thanks to the Principal and Fellows of Somerville for allowing us to use their lecture theatre while ours is being refurbished. Uh, this is the 20th Archie Cochrane Lecture, the first having been held at Green College in 1993. The lectures are in memory of the late Archibald Lehman Cochrane, who died in 1988. And Archie Cochrane was in his day probably the foremost advocate of the use of randomized controlled trials and epidemiological techniques to discover and hence to try to eradicate the causes of disease. And his rich and very varied and interesting career can be read as a kind of consistent onslaught on unsubstantiated claims about medical interventions. He was particularly hard on psychiatry in a couple of the things that I've read. Uh, in this academic year, the college has had another important anniversary, what would have been Sir Richard Dole's 100th birthday. And that was celebrated in November by a wonderful McGovern lecture by Sir Richard Peter available still as a podcast on our website. Cochrane and Dole basically drove medical science in the same direction, and it's one that flourishes today, particularly in Oxford's Clinical Trial Service Unit, which is well represented in the college. To deliver the 20th lecture, we are very privileged to have been able to engage Ian Roberts, Professor of Epidemiology and Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Archie Cochrane's professional formation was critically influenced by studying with Bradford Hill at the London School, and from that grew the MRC Epidemiological Unit, and inspired by this work, but after his death, the world-leading Cochrane collaboration. And among his many other professional responsibilities, Professor Roberts leads the Cochrane Injuries Group, and he's also a principal investigator of the CRASH trials, large international randomized controlled trials that seek better ways to treat seriously injured trauma patients. We're all looking forward very much to hearing what he has to say this evening under his title, Trials in Emergency Care. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Ian Roberts. So, um, well, thank you very much for the opportunity to do this lecture. Um, I want to talk about uh, how I got into doing clinical trials in emergency situations um, and some of the issues in doing clinical trials with people who are in extremes. So, I uh, got, I, I, I first, I really got interested in this issue after I killed a 13 year old girl. So um, I'll, I'll explain about that you might believe I did. Uh, what I think I did, um, I, was, um, I used to be a trauma doctor. I was working in a hospital in New Zealand, in Auckland. And uh, on call, on a weekend, um, Saturday, I think it was a Saturday, and there was a high-speed road crash just north of Auckland. Two, two cars hit, you know, hit his head on. Parents were in the front, they were killed immediately, and there was a little girl, their daughter, in the back seat um, with a lap belt on. And she sort of slid underneath, it's it's called a submarine injury, you sort of slide underneath underneath the lap belt, and it sort of kind of ruptured a lot of her internal organs. So then she she came in fully conscious, so she didn't have a head injury, but she was deathly pale. And um, she was bleeding from inside. And um, the uh, and then my job as part of the trauma team, my job was to sort of look after her airway. So I was holding her, her head like this, and, and everybody else was doing lots of other things. And um, uh, she, she said, "Now am I going to be all right?" You know, and I said, "Yes, I think you're going to be fine." And uh, and then I gave her an anaesthetic, so we we we, we you know we had to take her to the operating theatre to mend the holes in the stomach and, uh, and then the spleen. And stuff. And uh, um, I said, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm I think, I think you might do better than that. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I do that a lot. So I said, you know, uh, 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. Am I going to be alright? I said, yes, you're going to be fine. I put her to sleep. And then she went to the theatre. She never woke up. So she, she bled to death in the operating theatre. And I really felt, uh, I really felt like I killed her. Because I sort of took away her consciousness and uh, said she'd be alright. And then she clearly wasn't. Actually, over time, I, I, I feel I didn't kill her, but I more know that I did, uh, because most of the things that we did for her have been subsequently shown in randomized controlled trials to worsen the outcome. So we, in those days, we did um, the, the big idea based on some cohort studies, observational studies of trauma patients, is that trauma patients who have uh, very active circulations, you know, the, the ones who have full circulations are more likely to survive. So people used to give a lot of fluid in the hope of, you know, um, you know because they believed that that... Um, and now subsequent randomised controlled trials have shown that the patients who get less fluid do better. So all of these things we thought we were doing to help didn't, um, and probably increased the risk of death. Um, I'll talk about some of those. So then I decided to, after, around that time, I decided I had kids of my own by that time. And, um, and I used to, whereas I used to find trauma care very exciting and interesting and, and, and almost like fun, exciting, um, I was rather horrified after, after I had children of my own. So I, I, um, I decided I would be much more interested in prevention. So I, I, I learned about this stuff called epidemiology, which I didn't know anything about uh, at the time. So um, I did, I did a, a study, of, a case control study, it's called Risk Factors for Child Pedestrian Death. Uh, it's uh, not particularly useful, but um, afterwards I did a postdoc, and that was useful. But one of the most useful things that happened was, was I met this person, this is... Uh, Ian Chalmers, I, he, he was, I, I did a postdoc in Montreal and he was uh, giving a lecture there. He was, he was setting up this new organisation called the Cochrane Collaboration. And so I went to listen to this guy and I thought he was quite persuasive. I was quite taken by the things he said because they were very simple. Um, I'm really suspicious about complexity. Um, so the things he said were very simple. He said, you know, before we do new research, we should see what the existing research shows. God, you know, I just couldn't realize, I, I, I hadn't done that, oh my goodness, that's, that's a bit of a stupid one, Roberts. Um, anyway, so before we do new research, we should see what the existing research shows, and when we review research, we should take the same steps to avoid bias and random errors when we do research. Again, it seems like a no-brainer now, but at the time, nobody seemed to realize it. So I said to him, look, can, I set a, can we start a group in your new Cochrane collaboration that looks at the effectiveness of treatments for trauma. And he said, yeah, well, actually, no, he said, no, it's his clever strategy. His clever strategy was to tell you that you couldn't do it, and so that you'd want to do it more. Uh, and that worked with me, so he said, I couldn't do it, and I really wanted to do it, and then eventually we started to set up a group to look at the evidence from randomized controlled trials about the effectiveness of treatment for trauma. And, um, it was a real mess at the time, and there were all these various surveys around. Now, these, these things over here are treatments that they give for the management of head injury. So, you know, it's a very common cause of trauma death. Someone hits their head, um, the brain expands inside the skull, the skull's only got so much space in it, uh, the brain you know, gets bigger and bigger, and then the brain gets sort of pushed down. It, you know, your brain stem gets shoved into your, into your spine. Uh, spinal, you know, uh, to your spinal canal, or whatever it's called, and uh, you die. And so they have lots of treatments for uh, the management of uh, head injury. And the interesting thing is that some people used them and some people didn't. Um, and you know, it looks a real, it looks a real mess because you think if there was an effective treatment, like most people would use it, and if it was a, uh, if it didn't work, then nobody would use it. It's not like that. It's, it's really much more messy. So, like corticosteroids, and you know, half of the doctors, half the doctors use them, half the doctors don't. You know, so it didn't really make sense. So we started to review the evidence for the effectiveness of all of these treatments. So 
I'll go through each of the evidence for the effectiveness of all of these treatments. So what this is, uh, so let me explain this one. So this is a systematic review. That means you've gathered all of the randomized controlled trials together. Uh, a systematic review of randomized controlled trials of the use of bar barbiturates in patients who have um, head injuries. Now the idea of barbiturates is like they, they sort of, um, you know, they kind of switch the electrics off in the brain and that causes the brain, the brain's less metabolically active and, it, and it's supposed to be less likely to get swollen and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so this guy, Bon, in 1989 did a randomized trial. Um, it's got huge confidence intervals, that's because there was hardly any patients in it. Um, the, the effect of the, the trial treatment, the, the, you know, the risk, the relative risk of dying, the risk of dying in those who got the treatment divided by the risk of dying in those who did not get the treatment was bang on one. But the confidence interval is really wide. Um, and then Eisenberg did a trial later, confidence interval. And like, in all of the world, there's 208 randomized patients in all of the randomized control trials of barbiturate. Now, this is a treatment that they give in emergency departments on intensive care units all around the world, even till today. So only 208 managed to get into, into randomized trials. And as a result, the treatment could be dramatically better or it could be dramatically worse. And we haven't got a clue. And we don't really know. Um, so the next one, this is corticosteroids. You know, there's not, doctors have this theory for this. You know, you, you, uh, you know, corticosteroids are good for swelling. The brain swells. You reduce, reduce brain swelling. So there's, there's been about 13 randomized controls. There had been. This is then. There had been ran, about 13 randomized control trials of corticosteroids in traumatic brain injury, and you know, very wide confidence intervals. Not particularly good quality trials. A little bit. There was a little bit of a you know, tended to be towards the benefit side, but still compatible with a bit of benefit and, um, and, and a bit of harm. There are no randomized trials at all of, of taking this fluid off, which is the, they do hyperventilation. They still do this all around the world every day. If you had a, 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 a trauma in Oxford today, you'd go to an intensive care, you'd probably get hyperventilation quite, quite easily, based on one trial, 77 patients. Uh, so could do good, could do harm, haven't a clue. Mannitol, um, that's the idea is that it's a high sugary solution you put into the, into the circulation and it sucks water out of the brain by osmosis. The brain gets smaller and there's more room. But who knows? You know, they could be a lot worse, could be a lot better. So nobody, nobody really knows. And um, so then we, we've got this sense of what works in head injury? Something that kills about I don't know, three, three million, four million people every year. Is that Probably less than that. A couple, a couple of million people killed, tens of millions treated, and nobody really know what what works. Then um, the other big idea was that large treatment effects are unlikely, but even moderate treatment effects would be worthwhile. That's a that's an idea that. Richard and Rory taught me, you know, that actually these modest treatment effects, you know, they can be really important, but you've got to do big trials to find them. Um, and we, we, we made this sort of little graph at the time. This is the, let me explain this graph. So if, you, if, if someone has a serious head injury, say that they might have a 20% risk of dying. If a treatment reduces that risk from 20% dead down to 10% dead. So, you know, if you've got the, without the treatment, 20% chance of dying, with the treatment, 10% chance of dying, that's a 10% absolute reduction in the risk of dying. It's a halving of the risk of dying, but it's a 10% absolute risk of uh, reduction in the risk of dying. So, what you can work out with a little bit of statistics is how big a clinical trial would need to be to detect a treatment effect of that size. So if you reduce the risk of dying from 20% down to 10%, so it's a 10% absolute risk reduction, a trial would have to be about 400 patients. Now these yellow bars are the size of existing randomized controlled trials in, in head injury. So 
if there was a treatment out there that halved the risk of death, reduced it from 20% down to 10%, then most trials would have been, you know, could have easily missed that wonder drug. Um, plausible treatment effects are probably much more likely to be here, you know, a couple of percent. If you could shave a couple of percent off the risk of dying, so if you had 20% risk of dying and you reduce that to 18% risk of dying, that's really good. Um, but you'd have to have a big trial to find out that. You'd have to be, oh, you know, about 10 to 20,000 patients. So that was the idea. Then we, we're very interested, we're very inspired by things like this, trials that grew out of Oxford, where, um, you know, you, you have uh, large numbers of randomized patients, highly statistical, you know, modest but really important treatment effects and, and very... You know, statistically robust results by doing big trials. So um, I got in touch with CTSU in Oxford. I said, can you teach us how to do clinical trials that are big? And they were very helpful, and they said they could. And we put together, we worked together on, on the first randomized control. The first big trial that we did in trauma was the CRASH trial. It was funded by the Medical Research Council. And we thought, well, let's take this question of steroids. So half the world get... Half the doctors in the world give steroids. Half the doctors in the world don't. The, the, the uh, neurosurgeons don't give steroids. Somebody has to be right. Let's see who, who's right. So we randomly allocated, well, the plan is we're going to random, randomly allocate 20,000 patients, 10 to get corticosteroids, 10 to get placebo. Um, and, um, but then there's this issue. This is the first issue you come across, which is consent. Um, and um, this is a big idea in medicine, the, the idea of informed consent. Uh, so this, um, you'll have heard of it, you know, the Nazi war crimes and the Nazi doctor's trial. And out of, coming out of the Nazi doctor's trial, there was this Nuremberg Code and the number one item on the Nuremberg Code is the voluntary consent of human subjects. It's absolutely essential. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent. Now, that's a problem in clinical trials of head injury because, by definition, you know, well, to be in the trial, you have to have, you have to be unconscious. So you can't give informed consent if you're unconscious. Uh, so what do you do? Um, you know, do you not do clinical trials or do you, do you find another way to do clinical trials? But obviously, you know, it's important that um, patients with head injury, that we have better treatments for head injury. And then there's a sort of Article 27 in the Declaration of Human Rights. Is everybody has the right to freely participate and share in scientific advancement and its benefits. So if we don't, if we can't find a way to include patients who can't give informed consent in clinical trials, then you know, there's a, this, this uh, group of patients are going to be denied the opportunity of benefits, of benefiting from scientific progress. So, um, fortunately, most people acknowledge that. Most ethics committees, they acknowledge that unconscious patients are an exception to the general rule of informed consent. And that's a good thing too. So what we did in the first crash trial is um, we said, well look, these patients can't give informed consent, so the doctor can take the decision to put the patient in the trial, just like they take the decision for all the other treatments that we don't know whether they work or not. And uh, we, we presented that to an ethics committee. There were no laws governing this at the time. So we presented this to an ethics committee, and they said, yes, they didn't have any difficulty with that at all. So you know, talk to patient representative their ethics committees, they get it really quickly. Um, that if you can't, you know, if you can't give informed so we get our sort of defense was like we wanted to be completely open about this. So we we're very open about, you know, like we gave relatives a, a leaflet saying, you know, your your husband's had a serious head injury. Uh, at this hospital, we you know we try and give all all the best treatments. Goodness knows how we know if they're the best, but we say we do. Um, and on top of that, you know, there'll be there'll be uh, as part of the study to try and improve the care of patients, they'll either get this uh, corticosteroid or placebo, and that worked very well. Nobody had any difficulty with that. 
the trial was going fantastically well. Um, we were recruiting patients really quickly. Uh, numbers of patients recruited went up really, really quite fast. And then the data monitoring committee rang us up after a data monitoring meeting and says, we've got to stop the trial. And I thought, oh my God, why? We've got to stop the trial. And we had to stop the trial because the treatment was associated with a highly statistically significant increase in the risk of death. So um, it was a big shock. Uh, you know, and the nice thing about these big simple trials is that you don't need to know any statistics to be able to interpret the results. Um, my son was about 12, 10 at the time, and I said, you know, what do you make of these? These cooling steers don't look much good. Um, so 20, 21% dead in the cooling steroid treated group, 18% dead in the placebo group, highly statistically significant increase in, in the risk of death. And this is a treatment that was used all over the world, all of the time. Um, so you medicine, because it's like a mass industry, can slaughter people on a huge scale. It's really quite, its ability to, to do big damage is really incredible. Um, and so this is, this is all of the little trials before, and then this is the, the results of the crash trial. Um, and it just, you know, sort of changed the results. You know, all of this little stuff, um, not very informative. And then a sort of lump of information that really um, was a bit of a big surprise. Um, and then, of course, all of the doctors, then they, they come up with pathophysiological theories about why. You know, they're very good at that. Um, they can explain anything. Um, and so they, some of them say, yeah, we do it all the time. Uh, so this was published in a, in a medical journal called The Lancet, and they, they the person who wrote the editorial that went with this paper estimated that on the basis of how many patients in Europe were treated with corticosteroids after head injury, they estimate, and the results of the trial, they estimated that since the 1980s, it probably caused about 10,000 deaths. Uh, that, that's deaths not from the disease, that's extra deaths from the medical care. So. Medicine is, is really, uh, can be really dangerous uh, if it gets it wrong. And it gets it wrong all, all of the time. Uh, oh, oh, let me see. Oh, come back. The, the good, another good thing we found about doing these big trials, we, get, we had something like uh, 40, we had like uh, several hundred hospitals in 40 countries, is that when you get a result, they, there's a lot of people to share it around. So we asked, every, they all put press releases out, and it was in the Times of India. You get, you've got a big network of people to disseminate the trial results, and that's really nice. Uh, whether it changes practice, goodness knows. Uh, but you, you can only hope it does. So um, that was a big shock. Um, other things, this is, this is something, another one of our early systematic reviews in the Cochrane Injuries Group. There's this stuff. That, um, when you resuscitate patients, uh, when patients have lost fluid from the circulation, uh, doctors give fluid to try and pump it up a bit, uh, to fill it out a bit. And they, they can either give, uh, say, usually they, there's two types of fluid. There's one called uh, crystalloids, that's just sort of salty water. That's like uh, saline, ringer's lactate. They're, they're just water with some salts in, basically. Or there are these sort of fancy, much more expensive stuff, things called colloids. Um, one of the most common ones is, 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 is it's made by boiling, it's from, made from maize or potatoes. Uh, so it's starch, starch in a, a suspension of starch solution. And I went to lots of meetings where doctors talked about the, 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 the special qualities of these starches and how they stay in the circulation. They show you bits of they show you little pictures of their pathophysiological theories of why starches are better, um, but we were sceptical. And so we looked at the evidence and we found that you know, they were much more expensive than salty water. They were not, there was no evidence that they were any better. In fact, they could be a little bit worse. And we said they should only be used in randomized control trials. That was in 1998. Uh, but they, they were, they were used all of the time. And, and um, recently, uh, couple of big trials, so some really nice big trials. 
um, from people in, in uh, Australia. This big trial, John Myberg, and, and, and about uh, 7,000 patients randomized to get this starch solution or crystalloid salty water. Um, and when you add up all of the big trials, you get a, a statistically in, in, significant increase in mortality. You know, you know it's, not, it's not barn door clear killer, but you know, the, the evidence shows it increases the risk of dying, uh, which isn't a good thing. Gonna have to tell you that. Um, these trials were in the meta-analysis that these had to be taken out because they were all they were subsequently found all to be fabricated. Um, that the, they didn't they hadn't been done at all. There was this guy Bolt, a uh, German researcher, kind of lost the plot, uh, did lots of little trials, uh, got onto the conference circuit, he was very famous. Uh, he was doing lots and lots of little trials, lots of complicated pathophysiological trials, um, and then uh, well, the journal editor got suspicious, asked to see some evidence that these trials have eventually taken place, he blustered for a while, uh, and it, turn, it turned out that they were all fabricated and they were all um, retracted in the end. So the, the best evidence we've got is these, that this starch solution that we've been using, a uh, very expensive way to managed patients, probably increases the risk of death, certainly <coughs> increases the risk of renal failure. Um, so that's the risk of, effect on the risk of death, that's the risk of the effect on renal failure. Um, no evidence of benefit, you know, strong suggestion of harm. Uh, I had a, a teleconference, after seeing these results, I, I thought, well, let's get the Intensive Care Society and the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine and the uh, uh, Bruce Keogh, let's get everybody on a teleconference and say, look, you know, let's, let's have a let's send out an alert to all uh, intensive care units to say, stop using these drugs because they don't, you know, this medicine because it's expensive and it doesn't help. Um, and got them on the teleconference, and they were worried about doing this. What they worried about? They were worried about litigation. Well, what, what aspect of litigation are they worried about? They're not worried about litigation from patients that, you know, that, that might have renal failure. They're worried about litigation from the pharmaceutical company, who goodness knows why. You know? But very reluctant to take any action. So the, the results have been referred to the uh, medicines and health regulatory agencies. So the intensivists will only stop, I think, using these treatments if, the, if they're banned and not become available. You know, so medicine is quite bizarre sometimes. They, it behaves in, in, in a strange way. Um, so uncertainties in medicine are really rife. You know, lots of the treatments, we don't know if they do more harm than good. And the best way to find out if they do more harm than good or more good than harm is to do a randomized controlled trial. And um, look, lots of people, including Ian Chalmers, lobbied the General Medical Council to get them to agree that actually resolving these uncertainties is part of being a good doctor. That seems to make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, you agree with that? And, and they agreed tempor temporarily. So they, they put this in their you must work with colleagues and patients to help resolve uncertainties about the effect of treatments. That was in 2006. They just released another one last week, and it's not there now. Now it's got some sort of, I don't know, new age sort of, uh, yeah. you must regularly reflect on your standards of practice, you must regularly reflect on your standards of practice in the care you provide. I don't know what that means. I have to, I have, I've got to do this revalidation thing, like all doctors have. And I was, I was filling in the forms last week, and I've got to reflect on stuff. Uh, I, I don't know what it means. You know. um, how you can re you could have reflected on your use of steroids, but you wouldn't have known they were killing ten thousand patients. You could have reflected on your use of, of uh, starch in intensive care. It wouldn't have told you that they increased the risk of renal failure. So I think that anyway. So we've written written to the master to change them back, but 
I doubt that we will. So the next, the next thing we started working on is hemorrhage. Um, lot, lot, you know, brain, brain injury is really important, uh, but hemorrhage, people, a lot of people bleed to death as well. And uh, so this is this is blood, and this is, this yellow stuff is is fibrin. So when we start, when we bleed, and they, the body tries to stop the bleeding by forming a blood clot, um, this sort of protein fibrin. Uh, but there's an enzyme in the blood called plasmin that goes around chopping up these fibrin strands, making the blood uh, thinner, thinner again. And that's that. That you know, in theory, that could be bad for your bleeding. Maybe more likely to bleed. Um, and then there was this scientist. Uh, she's called, she's a woman called Utako Okamoto, and um, this is. Utoko Okamoto, that's her husband, Shosuke, that's her daughter. Uh, they didn't have any childcare. This is, she's a Japanese researcher and she did work in the 60s in Japan. Uh, well, 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, and she, they were very interested in this problem of this enzyme that chops up the blood clots. And um, they, they were seeing if they could find an inhibitor of that enzyme. And so she worked with her husband uh, to find a, a, an inhibitor of this enzyme, and she found one. It's a drug called tranexamic acid. And um, she found it in the 60s. Uh, the paper, she published the paper um, reporting its effect, effect pretty much the day I was born, uh, which is half a century ago. Um, and, um, and it was used mainly for heavy periods in women. And it's, an effect, it's effective at reducing uh, heavy periods, but it's also used in surgery. Now, there's been lots and lots of little trials of this treatment in surgery. So, surgical patients randomly allocated to get this drug, tranexamic acid or placebo, and you see, um, you know, what, what the effect of, of it is on how much people bleed, whether they needed a blood transfusion, whether they died, and it looks really good. So we, one of our Later systematic reviews in the Cochrane Injuries Group, we did systematic reviews of, of these randomized trials of treatments of, the, of tranexamic acid in surgical patients, and it really seemed to work. So the prior belief that corticosteroids would be effective was kind of rubbish uh, in retrospect, but the prior for, for, for tranexamic acid as a treatment for, for, for bleeding, uh, you know, at least in surgery, it really reduced the risk of needing a blood transfusion, there was a, you know, this isn't really very strong evidence, but, you know, no evidence of harm and potential benefit. Um, and we were about, uh, we were just launched, a new, uh, we were about to launch a new trial called the CRASH-2 trial, surprisingly, uh, when the government introduced a new law. <gasps> this was a disaster. Uh, this was the Medicines for Human Use Act 2004. And it imposed the need for prior consent from either a personal or professional legal representative before a person could be randomized into a trial. So they said that if you're going to do a clinical trial, you ha somebody has to give you prior consent. So you have to have written prior consent. It could be for, for two people. So it could be somebody that you've given power of attorney to, you know, you've, you've said, well, look, you know, this person here can actually give consent on my behalf if I can't. Not many people have those. I don't, I don't have one. And, um, and you don't travel around with them uh, you know, when you might need them, you know, it's like you're in a car crash or you're stabbed or something. And then the other idea was that, you know, there'd be somebody in each hospital who's designated by the trust as the professional legal representative, and they are kind of trained to know what, what you might like if you were in, in this situation. Bit implausible, I thought. Um, but anyway, and the other thing is the NHS trusts in Britain just didn't do it. They didn't train these people. Why should they? You know, they've got other things to do. So they didn't train people to be professional legal representatives. It's not the job you might like to do, is it? You know, like any hour of the day or night, you, you could be called up to, uh, to decide what, you know, what do you think this man might have liked? Uh, so it was a disaster. 
And, and whereas the first crash trial recruited lots of patients from the UK, the second crash trial hardly recruited any patients at all. And we tried to lobby the government, and we, we saw MPs and went to committees and tried to, uh, lots of people who work in emergency medicine, emergency care research, lobbied, and eventually there was a change in the law. Oh, I thought that was, yeah. So it's this situation that we're interested in. You know, this, this woman's been stabbed in the stomach, she's bleeding, you know. Um, it's an emergency situation. You know, she, she could die, she needs emergency care. Uh, so if we're going to improve the care of people like this, we have to put them in clinical trials, we have to do it fast. You know, we can't wait for your, someone who's got legal attorney to come and sort you out, or it doesn't really make sense to call in the hospital chaplain on a Saturday night to come in from, from home and, and give you know, signed written consent. That doesn't really make sense. Eventually, the law was changed. It was amended in 2006. Uh, the Second Amendment to the Medicines for Human. And then they allowed unconscious patients in emergency situations to be enrolled without prior consent provided that it be approved by an ethics committee. So we were back to where we were at, at, you know, in the case of the first, the first crash trial. And then after they changed the law, we could start everything going. But you know, the, it takes about a year to make an application, to get all of this through the pipeline, all, all the regulatory aspects out of the way. And so it took a long time. So hospitals in the we got lots of hospitals from other parts of the world, but not very many patients from the UK. Uh, but eventually, we got 20,000 patients in the trial. So 10,000 got tranexamic acid, 10,000 got placebo. And then, for once, we got a great result. You know, highly statistically significant reduction in the risk of bleeding to death. Um, and this is the... I, I love this. It's, it makes me excited even now, and it's been years later. Uh, because it's the only randomised controlled trial I've ever done that showed anything that worked. Um, Rory's had lots of them, uh, but, but, but we, we used the, you know, it, it, anyway, it seems to work. Uh, so, highly statistically significant reduction in the risk of bleeding to death, also reduced the risk of all-cause mortality. And then we've got this really interesting thing. We, 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 we expected the treatment would be better if given early would be less good if given late, because um, people tend to go through different phases. To start with, there's a, there's a very, um, there's a, a, a phase of your clinical course where you're very bleedy, very likely to bleed to death. And then a little bit later, like if you survive that, later on day two and day three, you're more likely to clot to death. So we hoped that if this was a treatment that helps hemorrhage, uh, you need to get it in while people are in the bleeding phase, but avoid it when they're in the clotting phase. So um, we did a sort of pre-specified subgroup analysis where we stratified people on the basis of time to treatment. So um, we thought that if you got it within the first one, one hour, it'd be better than if you got it one to three, it would be better than if you got it three and onwards. And um, so we looked at that, and, and it did seem to be much more effective when given early um, you know, re really big effect when, when given early, and, and then later, um, lesser effect, but still, you know, very big effect. And the big surprise is that if you give it late, it seems to actually increase the risk of death due to bleeding. Now, this could, I mean, we've had lots of debates about this. Um, could be a fluke. What, what doesn't seem to be a fluke is this, that there seems to be some time dependency in the effect of the treatment such that the earlier you get it, the better. This is a something called the test for heterogeneity, and it's, it's, looking, it's asking a question, to what extent are that, that, and that, really just that, such that they differ only by chance from the main treatment effect. And that means, all of these zeros here mean that's very unlikely. You know, it's, it's very unlikely that, that these differences in the effect of treatments have arisen by chance alone. It seems likely that the treatment is much better earlier than later. Whether it actually increases the risk of death later, maybe 
not, you know, you can be less sure about that, but that it's time dependent seems quite uh, likely. Which brings us back to a sort of um, this consent issue, because this is really strong evidence that uh, early treatment is better than late treatment. And then we've got these sort of um, these uh, bureaucratic issues like informed consent, written informed consent, that delay the onset of treatment. And from the first crash trial, we had lots of hospitals, and some used waived consent. In other words, some say, okay, look, just, just put them in the trial, you don't need consent. And some of them insisted that you had to get a relative to give permission to put the patient in the trial. And if you, had, if you needed a relative, you had to find a relative, and that incurred a delay. So on average, time to treatment was about three, three, three hours if you, was, you could just go into the trial, and about four hours. Now, this is obviously there could be some differences, but you know, it's likely, it's plausible. And in this case, um, the, the data suggests it incurs a delay of about an hour to get someone to go and sign this form. And what does it help? You know, how does this signing of this form help you? Um, it also reduces the amount of patients you can recruit because usually, if there's a usually there's a time window in emergency care trials. So if you actually cause delay this end, patients are pushed out of the time window. So you actually reduce the size of the trial. You reduce the you reduce the monthly recruitment. Um, so. Knowing that early treatment is better and that the need for written informed consent delays the onset of early treatment, you can work out actually how much damage informed consent does. And so we did this in a paper with, with Ian Chalmers and the Lancet. Basically, um, so this blue line is the risk of death in the control group. The, yellow line is the risk of death if intervention is not delayed. And if you incur a delay, it's, you know, whilst the, whilst the um, yellow line is below the blue line, it's a net treatment benefit. But delay sort of shifts it that way. So, you know, fewer patients benefit. And you can, you know, you can work out from this how many, how many more patients or the effect of the delay in terms of its reduction in the number of patients who stood to benefit from the trial treatment. So it goes from 63% had the potential to benefit from the trial treatment down to 50% benefited. And also, the other thing that's really important is that if, if you have a delay to treatment based because of some bureaucracy like getting informed consent, you're not testing the treatment, how it would be used in clinical practice. And that's a really important point, you know, because uh, if the treatment's effective, then, you, you know, well, yeah, you're not using the treatments as it would be used in clinical practice, so it's not a really fair test. So, but there's more to this than... Um, so this is what it says in the Medicines for Human Use Clinical Trials Regulations. Uh, you could, they made an exception to this general rule of informed consent. So you could put a patient in a clinical trial who is an incapacitated adult as a matter of urgency, blah, blah, blah. So this is the exception to the general rule of informed consent. You can waive consent if the patient's incapacitated. Now, I'm pretty sure that the reason that I'm giving this lecture, I think, because I think it was Richard Peter who invited me, uh, is because the last time I talked about this, I tried to show that actually there's a lot, that, you know, there's a lot more than incapacity. So basically, that patients in an emergency situation, even if the brain works in theory, even if they haven't got a brain injury, they can in theory think, in practice, they're terrified and frightened. And actually, it's silly to try and obtain informed consent from them. Because they, you know, even if they're not incapacitated, 
The situation means they're incapacitated. Now, to, last time I did this was in a, I tried to explain this was in a, a meeting in Toronto. What I did at this point, I blew a whistle, and two women ran out of the audience and cut my clothes off, <laughs> and um, and it got people's attention, and then they were all looking, you know, what the heck the heck's going on? And the reason that I did that, uh, they, they could be men. <laughs> Uh, but the reason I did that is that it's what happens to a trauma patient. You go in, when you have a, trauma, a serious trauma, you, you go into this room and the, you know, the nurses cut your clothes off. Uh, they, they, the doctors stick uh, you know, cannulas in your arm. They, they might grab hold of your penis and put a catheter into it. You know? The idea that you can actually say, Excuse me, sir. At this hospital, we're doing something called a randomized trial. Uh, you know, so you may know because it's ridiculous, and patients don't have any difficulty knowing that that's ridiculous. But ethics committees and and um, regulators do, and, and but they don't realise it doesn't add anything. It could do a lot of harm, and it's. It, it, it doesn't really make any sense. It's a, it's a, it's a nonsense. And then there's other things like, so then you've put the patient into, into the clinical trial, and then you've got this question of what happens then when they recover competence? So if they survive, they don't die. Well, well, according to the law, what you've got to do is, if and when a person, a, a, a participant on, on behalf of, if you've been put in a randomised controlled trial, you must be informed, and that's good. You say, so we do, I like to do that. You know, you know, but all the doctors tell the patients, you, you are randomised into a randomised trial. And then, this is the one that worries me, that consent must be obtained for the use of their data. And uh, so the patient then, you must ask them for permission to use their data in the clinical trial. So in theory, they could take it out of the clinical trial. Now, that is a seriously antisocial act. And I don't know why we put up with that. You know, I don't know why we feel that you've got the right to withdraw your data from a clinical trial. Your anonymized data, it doesn't harm you that it's in included, but it harms the validity of the trial if you take it away. And the validity of the trial affects the treatment of thousands of patients. So this is a horrible thing to do. Now I don't see why we should give people the right to withdraw the data. Now I don't have lots of rights, like uh, I don't have the right not to pay tax. You know, the, the, the government says I have to, it just goes and hikes it away before I can do anything about it, you know. This should be the same, you know. If, if you've been randomised into a clinical trial, your, your anonymous data isn't yours that you can withdraw. And, and to do that, I think you should be jailed if you want to do that. Um, but that's probably a little bit extreme. Fortunately, the Ethics Committee agreed with, agreed with this because in the CRASH-2 trial, we had some patients who were randomised into the, into the trial with a waived consent. We tried to get consent after, to, you know, to, to use their data, and we couldn't. You know, so, some patients are, um, they just go, they leave the hospital, we missed them, and, and there were, ended up about, about 34 patients that we couldn't get consent to use their data. And then the regulatory agency, because we'd had an MHRA inspection by this time, the regulatory agency said that we should not use the data in the trial. We should take it out of the data set and not use it. So that's what the regulator said. And so we wrote to the Ethics Committee and said, well, what do you think we should do? And the Ethics Committee said we should use it. <coughs> so now we have, the, we have the choice of being legal or ethical. And um, so the Ethics Committee's opinion was that it would not be appropriate to exclude these data given the risk of bias that this would introduce. I mean, it probably wouldn't make a big difference with a big trial like that, just 34 patients. But it's a, there's a, I suppose, a principle. Um, so what we did is we wrote to the regulator and said, 
we, the ethics committee says we're going, we can do this, and we're going to do it unless you stop us. And of course they don't stop you, do they? So, uh, uh, so we, we used it even though it was against their uh, judgment. So that woman I showed you, that Japanese woman, who did the research in the 1960s, um, I found her. And uh, she's 95 now. Uh, she, she lives in Kobe. And um, Japanese women live forever. Uh, if you can't be a Japanese woman, you should marry one. And, I, and I've done that recently. Um, so she'll get the house. She'll probably get a couple of marriages in after me. Uh, that was a joke. Um, so there she is, Utako Okamoto. She, she invented this movie the, the, the year I was born. And I asked her, I, I had the opportunity to say, what, what was in your mind? What did you hope for when you invented this drug? She said she wanted it, she, she hoped it would be an effective treatment for postpartum hemorrhage. That kills about 100,000 women every year. So that, you, know, you have your baby, you start bleeding, and you bleed and bleed and bleed and die. And, um, in, I don't know, we, so we've started a trial now called the Woman Trial of the same drug in Nigeria. Well, it's a global trial, but a lot of recruitment in Nigeria. This, is, this photograph's Nigeria, I think. Um, the risk of postpartum hemorrhage, about four or five percent of women with postpartum hemorrhage die in the trial so far. Um, we hope that this treatment will reduce the risk of death. That's what she hoped for. This is the consent situation in the trial. Uh, so this is, this, the, it's, about, it's a little, gone a bit further on now, got about 7,000 randomized, but this is the percentage who get, this is consent from the woman. We've got 74% the actual woman gives consent. 14% of relative give consent. 9% of waiver. The regulators think this is the problem. Uh, we think that is the problem. It, we think that if a woman gives consent, we think that's a problem. We, we don't believe that consent is valid. Because postpartum hemorrhage, you've just delivered a baby, and you start bleeding, and what happens is that the, you know, there's a big alert, and people are running around, and the, like, somehow in the trial, you know, doctors have managed to get written informed consent from, you know, 74% of patients. We're skeptical about that. We can't believe that that's real. So we question these. We don't question these. We think this is appropriate. But we question these, especially, you know, sometimes this informed consent is 10 minutes after randomization, 10 minutes after, after delivery. How could that happen? I mean, there might be some cases where woman's delivered, slowly bleeding, doctors are trying to do something about it, then they randomise it into the trial. That might be the case, but this, we're more concerned about that than that, but regulators and ethics committees have the opposite view. So I want to, I just want to, coming towards the end now, talk about this Nuremberg, Nuremberg issue and the, you know, the, where it all came from, this importance of informed consent. So, you know, without doubt, the, you know, the, 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 the experiments, if they were, you know, the things that Nazi doctors did to patients were horrific. You know, uh, I've, I've been reading all about them, um, the transcripts of the, of the Nuremberg court case. They were really awful things. Uh, I meant to read them out to you, but I'm, it's, it's in my bag, you know. The, so this is a sort of high altitude, Experiment, you know, the idea was that they find out what, what might happen to German airmen if they bailed out. At, and so they they put this uh, prisoner uh, in a in a in a container and reduced the pressure, and you know, until the patient had convulsions. This is a something, you know, like a, what would happen if we put people in really cold water. Uh, so you know, put in cold water, see how they can stand. There were other ones about, the one I was reading on the train, that was about this treatment for 
hemorrhage, polygel. What they would do, they would shoot Jewish prisoners and then uh, give, them the, give them the drug, shoot them, and then see what happens to their insights and their clock. No, horrific. No doubt about it. But when you read them, you ch- it just reads like an abuse of power. It doesn't read about, it doesn't, why it became, why the Nuremberg Code is all about research, I don't understand. When you read these transcripts, you think, my God, this is just an abuse of power on a big scale. It's not, it doesn't seem, you know, your natural inclination wouldn't be to say, oh my God, the first thing that should happen, there should have been informed consent. You know, that just doesn't come to mind. It's like there's something went terribly wrong about power. And that's what you need to sort out. It's not informed consent. The first principle, informed consent, doesn't seem to follow from this. So, you know, a few Nazi doc. This is a photograph of the Nazi doctor's trial. These people were, you know, considered responsible for all these nasty things that that happened. But that's not really what comes out either when you read the. There was a total societal abuse of power. It wasn't about a small group of nasty people who did really bad things. It was a whole society, you know, a whole country, a whole group of people that lost their way, got it really wrong. And so it's not that these people didn't get informed consent. It was actually, there's a huge, you know, it's about power and so this is like, um, you know, the, the whole German medical profession lost its way. So this is, um, so Dr. Stoder um, is the president of the German, uh, two, two, is the president of both the two largest German medical associations. You know, Hitler was a, you know, uh, Hitler came to power in 1933, I think. I know there's historians here, I have to be careful. So. You know, and he, and he meets the, the president of, the, of the, the German equivalent of the BMA, meets with Hitler and, say, and, and congratulates him and says, yes, you know, we're all right behind you. And this, you know, this is the, um, the equivalent of the sort of British medical journal of German medicine. Um, and it's talking about how, the, you know, we, this talks about uh, Hitler's plans to eliminate Jews, the medical profession as a whole, right behind this. So it was the whole of the, you know, it was, not, it was a total abuse of power. This is the front page of, a, of the me, main medical journal from the German Medical Association. So they embraced this Nazism and this, this concept of, um, you know, uh, eugenic sterilization, race, purity, all that sort of stuff. They used economic arguments. Uh, this is one of, some of their propaganda, you know, that looking after a normal person costs 125 Reichsmarks, but looking after somebody who's not so, you know, looking after someone who's blind and deaf costs a lot. So this is an economic argument for getting rid of them. Uh, so, yeah, it's different. Uh, it's not about, it wasn't about, you know, the Nazi, the Nuremberg Code came out of the Nazi doctor's trial and it didn't really make sense, in my opinion. I'd like to hear what other people's opinions are. Because this wasn't about research, this was about a societal abuse of power. And the reason why you know, this is important is because if we think it's all about, if we think it's all about research, you know, bureaucracy, then we'll miss the big abuses of power that we, you know, could be happening now. And I think they are happening. <laughs> you know, the fact that you know, like the, you know, the intensive care society, um, you know, won't withdraw this drug that the best won't tell its members to stop using this drug that the best evidence shows it it's killing patients or causing renal failure. I mean, that's a problem. You know, that's an abuse of power. Um, the fact that you know most of the treatments for trauma have never been shown to improve outcome. That's an abuse of power. So I think almost, you know, we we can get lost. 
and this was the BMJ Nuremberg issue. You know, this, you know, this, this, the, the author of this piece said, you know, it was an, he believed it was an abuse of power by the whole of the German medical profession, and that, you know, what happened was that there was a particular convergence of political, scientific, and economic forces that changed the relationship between the whole medical profession and the government. And what he said then, you know, he wrote this, you know, the same convergence is occurring again, and you know, we've got to be alert to these sorts of things. Because these, these, the real ethical issues are alive now. You know, the, there's stuff happening now that's real medical ethics, you know, but it's not this signing of a piece of paper. And I think if we, if we focus on this, on these trivia that ethics committees have to deal with now, they will miss these big societal issues that are really important. That's it. <laughs>